my bidding, Lord, send me. Good evening and welcome back to our service tonight. We're so glad that you're here. We often say that, but we want you to know that it is the truth. We, we do look forward every time to having everyone here. We have several who are away tonight for the uh, area-wide youth series, but we're glad that you are with us. If you have your Bible, as you know, we're studying through the book of Judges. We're in chapter number 10 tonight. We want to spend some time there. You know, sometimes, I'll say this before we get started, sometimes I think we, we want to go from one story to another story and skip what's in between. And it's not good for us to skip the in-between stuff. It's sort of like the, the stuff, you know, in the Oreo cookies. You like the, 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 the cream part and people will tear that apart. But if you miss, you know, if you just eat the outside, you miss some of the best stuff. And that's the case with us tonight. We don't want the two parts of the story. We want to get what's in between. As we think about tonight, uh, let me go to the right way. As we think about tonight, we go to chapter 6, and we've seen this cycle before. The Bible says the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, served Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Over and over in the book of Judges, we see that happening. And we know, we said at the very beginning of our study of the book of Judges, that that was what was going to happen. We know that. That's the reason God kept raising up different judges, and so we have that. And then we also have God's reaction in verse number 7. So the anger of the Lord, because of what these people had done, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. As you think about that, you have his reaction. He's angry with them, but this time he uses two nations to punish them. He says, we want to talk about the Ammonites and the Philistines. Now the Ammonites mainly, they... Uh, they came and oppressed the people on the eastern side of the Jordan River. But for 18 years they did that, and then they sort of crossed the river and began to oppress the tribes of Ephraim and Judah and so forth. The Bible makes that clear here in this passage. But then we also have the Philistines who are mentioned. We know that they're quite prominent in the Bible for their oppression of the children of Israel. What we have in this passage, though, is... Uh, uh, the two nations that we'll be basically talking about for the rest of the book of Judges. The Philistines and the Ammonites, they're the ones who are the oppressors that we'll read about from, from this point on in the book of Judges. And so we have this, you know, in this chapter, but there's much more to come. We know later on that we're going to find uh, Samson, and we know who Samson fought against. He fought against the Philistines. And even on past the time of the judges, the Philistines were still a thorn in the side of Israel, were they not? Because who were they fighting when King Saul was on the scene? They were fighting the Philistines. Who was Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine. And so we're introduced to them here in this passage. They are uh, becoming quite prominent here. But then we come to uh, expect the next step. 
people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We've sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and we served the Baals. You know, it's sort of interesting to me as we look at verse number 10 that it probably says a lot more than what we sometimes might think in what they actually confess here in this verse. The Israelites, it seems, if once you read the rest of it, are not necessarily uh, changing their ways. They're just sort of tattling on themselves. They just sort of said, well, this is what we've done. Okay, we, we turned aside from you. We started serving the other gods. Now, they're crying out to the Lord. They, they want him to deliver them, it seems. That's what they have done uh, over and over again in the book of Judges. But as we think about it, they're sort of like spoiled children. Uh, it's almost as though they're saying to God, okay, God, do your thing. You know, we, we've sinned, and now we've come back to you, do your thing. Don't spoil children do that? Parents, you know, who continually get their children out of trouble over and over and over again without correcting the child? And so that's what Israel, it seems, has become. God, do your thing. Okay? And I say that for this reason. What happens next? The Lord said to the people of Israel, well, I've, I've saved you before. Didn't I deliver you out of the hands of the Egyptians? I'm not reading it word for word. Didn't I deliver you out of the hands of the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Sidonians and so forth, the Amalekites, the Maonites and all of those? Have I not done that? And they had to say, yes, God, you've done that. But what comes in the next verse, verse 13, is really shocking. Yet you've forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. You see, that's where we need to dig in. That's one of the beauties of studying verse by verse and in the Word of God. It's one of the things about expository preaching. There's so much good preaching that can come from what we find within the text. God says, you've forsaken me and served other gods, therefore the answer is different this time. I will save you no more. Whoa. You see, that's some pretty hard words coming from their only hope. That's pretty hard words coming from the one who had been their Savior before. He reminded them in verses 10 through 12, Yes, I've saved you before, but not this time. I will save you no more. Here's what I want you to do. You go cry out to those other gods that you've chosen to serve. You forsook me. Now go ask them if they will save you from your distress. Go see if you will. Go see if they will. Don't you just wonder how many prayers and offerings had been delivered to the foreign gods? How many times these people had cried out to these gods already, save us, save us, save us. And not a single one of those lifeless gods, those idols, could help the Israelites. The only hope the Israelites had, of course, and you know that and I know that, was God. And so having known His goodness in the past, they figured they would 
rather risk his punishment rather than going through what they were going through, but maybe they didn't realize that what they were going through was what God was bringing upon them because of their sin, verse number 7. Maybe they thought that if they could get face to face with him, he would be a little more merciful to them than the other oppressors. And so they come to him. Verse 15 says, The people of Israel said to the Lord, We've sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Lord, take us into your hands. You can do what you want to with us. Take us into your hands, but just get us out of the hands of these oppressors. And so here it is we find this group of people. But I want to go back. I'm not through yet. I don't know as much about what I've read so far as I want to know. What does God mean when he said, I'll save you no more? You see, that's the interesting part. That's the thing, the answer that we need to find. We'll find the children of Israel as we look at the rest of the book, God intervening for them. Matter of fact, we'll continue reading in this chapter and God will find a place of mercy for them. But what does he mean? I will save you no more. Good question, isn't it? We want to know what God means. Well, let's begin by thinking and understanding. When God said, I'll save you no more, he talks about sin and how it separates the word that was used was you have forsaken, or rather, uh, the, the sin that you have done. They admitted to the sin. They acknowledged the sin. But sin separates, doesn't it, from God. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2 is quite familiar to us, especially verse number 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin had made a separation. We sort of have that in Romans chapter 6 at verse 23. The wages of sin is death. What's death? Death is a separation, isn't it? When a body is dead, the soul is separated from the body. The second death that we will experience if we do not obey God will be separation from God without any hope of being reunited with him. Sin separates man from his God. The word separation means literally to separate or sever completely. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? The way it's used, the word that's used is probably best understood when we turn to the book of Leviticus chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. God is discussing the offerings that would be made to him. He, he, he expresses different ones. He talks about some poor people if they can't afford uh, a certain offering. He said, he shall bring them, talking about two turtle doves, he shall bring them to the priest who shall offer First, the one for the sin offering, and he shall wring its head from its neck, but shall not sever it completely. 
Here the word that we find back in Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 is used again and it's used from the standpoint of this bird's neck. It's modified by not, in this case, you, you don't, don't do exactly all of it. They were to sprinkle the blood. They were to tear it enough, and I know that gets pretty gross, but they were to tear it enough that they could get the blood from the bird, but they don't take the head completely off. Don't sever it completely. There is no not back there in the book of Isaiah 59, verse 2. There is a complete separation, a total severance, if you will, that's made between man and God when man sins. People had acknowledged their sin, and thus they were separated from God, but yet they were calling on God to come and help them out of the problem that they now faced. Not only did they acknowledge their sin, but they also acknowledged that they had forsaken God. Back there in the, in the passage that we've already read tonight, they said, we've sinned and we've forsaken you, God. Turn to idols. The word forsaken is used in the Old Testament more than 200 times the one that's translated forsaken here. It's translated with the word leave, leaving, or left some 58 times in the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis chapter 2 at verse 24, the Bible says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. That's the word that's translated forsaken in other passages, such as the one here in the book of Judges, chapter number 10. You know, one of the problems that many marriages face is they, the couple fails to leave their parents. They want to bring the parents into the marriage as well, and as a result of that, a husband or a wife, they'll listen to the parent over the spouse. That's not good. God said to leave the parents. Does that mean you don't love them anymore? No. Does it mean you don't care for them to help them when they get old? No. Doesn't mean those things. But there's a separation that's made, a forsaking, if you will, of the parent and a cleaving to the spouse. In Genesis 39, at verse number 12, the Bible says, speaking about... Potiphar's wife, when Joseph was in the house with her and she had been begging him to have a relationship with her. The Bible says in Genesis 39 verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me, but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. How much of uh, Joseph's garment did he have on when he got out of the house? None. Because... He left it behind. Children of Israel had left God behind. They had forsaken Him. The word is not only translated leave, leaves, leaving, so forth, or left, some uh, uh, 58 times or so, or, uh, yeah. It's also translated in a 
different way. Uh, it's translated 24 times with the word abandon or abandoned. It's translated desert, deserts or deserted, not the food, but what you do when you leave somebody nine times in the Old Testament. And so to forsake then means to leave, to abandon, to desert. And the people, the children of Israel, they acknowledged that they had left, abandoned, deserted God. A separation existed between Israel and God because Israel, get that point, had left, abandoned, deserted, forsaken God. Now with that in mind, we go back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31, before they ever went into the promised land, the Bible speaks about what they would do Verse uh, 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 16 there. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. They will forsake me. Break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. What did God say that he would do? This is before they ever got there and did it. I will forsake them and hide my face from them. They will be devoured. Many evils, troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? They are quite right in what they say. That the troubles come because God's not there. But the problem was not that God left them. They left God. And so when we look at it, they admitted to having sinned and having forsaken God. He's hiding his face from them, if you will, because of their actions. Well, preacher, you still haven't talked about that no more part. Well, let's talk about that just a little bit. Was God totally abandoning the children of Israel? When God made the statement to them, I will save you no more, was he totally abandoning, abandoning them? And we know that he wasn't because we read the rest of the Bible, haven't we? We've heard lessons on past this one already in our life. And so we know that God will deliver them again. Well, does that mean that God lied to the children of Israel when he said to them, I'll save you no more? Well, God never lies. It's impossible for him to do that. A couple of times we find that in the Word of God, don't we? It's not possible for him to tell a story. And so we can rule that one out pretty quickly. Well, what about it then? Did God repent of what he said? The word translated no more is used 208 times in the Old Testament. 
There's not going to be a test when you get to heaven to know how many times that word's there. But I say that tonight to say this. Seventy times that word is translated with the word again. Thirty-six times it's translated with either add, added, or adding. Maybe if we looked at a passage that would help us to understand better what God is saying. Numbers chapter 11 at verse 25 says this, The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. In this passage, we have the same word that's used over in our passage in the book of Judges that's translated no more. Are you putting two and two together? God didn't lie when he said what he said. God basically says, I'm not going to keep doing this. I'm not doing it over and over. How did we start our lesson tonight? We've seen this cycle, haven't we? Already. We've seen the cycle. They fall into sin, they call on God, and God delivers them. God says, I'm not going to keep on doing that. There will come a time when God's patience has run out. Now think about it. The word that we use here, translated no more, 70 times translated again. I'm not going to keep doing it again and again. Numerous times translated add, added, adds. I'm not going to keep adding up the times that I will save you. I'm not going to continue saving you over and over and over again. Somewhere along the way, the people have to learn their lesson, don't they? Somewhere along the way, they have to take responsibility for themselves. Maybe that's one thing that's wrong in our society today. Lenient parents sometimes have rescued their child over and over and over again, never letting him or her learn responsibility. And now they're grown, and they expect the same thing from not just parents, but anyone who's in authority. Because they couldn't possibly be responsible. They couldn't possibly be wrong. God says, I'm not that kind of parent. I won't keep on doing these things. Well, what would persuade God to save them this time? Is there anything that could be done that would persuade God to help them out yet again? You remember, and we've talked about this tonight, back in verse number 10, the children of Israel admitted to having sinned and have, having forsaken God. 
And God himself acknowledged that they had sinned and had forsaken him down in verse number 13. And if you remember, when I was talking about verse 10, I said, you know, it just sort of seems like they were tattling on themselves rather than actually asking God or doing what they needed to do. In verse 15, they again acknowledge their sin, but you've got to look close at the next verse after having acknowledged their sin in verse 15, what they did. Verse 15 says, So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now wait a minute, what's happened here? Back up here in verse 10, they acknowledged their sin. They said, we've sinned, we've forsaken God. God, do your thing. Do you see something missing? Or, let me ask it this way, do you see something that should have been missing? That's not missing until we get down here to verse number 16. It seems they wanted God to deliver them out of the hands of their oppressors but they wanted to hang on to the idols. And they wanted to keep living like they were living as long as God would get them out of the pickle that they were in. And that wasn't going to work. God said, I'll deliver you no more. I won't keep on delivering you. You've got to make a move and learn some responsibility yourself. You see, they had evidently acknowledged their sin earlier, but they had not as yet repented of that sin. What do you mean by that? Well, what is repentance? When we say repentance, what does that mean? When the Bible talks about repentance, what does that mean? If we go to the dictionaries that define the words as that were used in the original language, such as Vine's uh, New Testament dictionary, translates the word repentance as to change or to have a change of mind. But it doesn't stop there. In the New Testament, the subject that is repentance chiefly has reference to repentance from sin, and this change of mind involves both a turning from sin and a turning to God. You see, we might say it this way. Repentance has both a positive side and a negative side. What do you mean by that? Well, let's look at the negative side first. The negative side would be that they were uh, to turn away from sin. The positive side would be that they would turn to righteousness or turn to God. But how do we know that's what they're going to do? The Israelites had not yet acted by turning away from their sins because it seems they still had their idols. They wanted God's help. They'd turn to Him. They wanted God's help, but they wanted to keep on living the old way. 
What we have is a situation that's parallel to what we read in the New Testament. In the book of uh, Matthew, chapter 3, we have John talking to the Pharisees. They came out, along with the Sadducees, to hear John preach. John tells them in Matthew chapter 3 at verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does it mean to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? There's got to be some obvious sign in your life that you've changed. You can't say I've repented of some sin tonight and go home tomorrow and just keep on living in that sin, doing it over and over and over again. That's not repentance. John told the people of his day, you've got to bear some fruit. And it's got to match what you said in your life. John wasn't the only one who said that. Acts chapter 26 at verse number 20, the Apostle Paul declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You see, the life has to match up with whatever it is we're saying. The children of Israel wanted God to deliver them. They acknowledged they sinned, but it seems that they were just tattling on themselves and they still had their idols. And it's not until verse 16 that we find that they put the idols away and then we find God ready to have mercy upon them. He sees the misery that they have. You see, back in in, uh, Judges chapter 10, down in verse 16, when they actually got rid of their idols, we find a pretty good example of what they're told to do many years later. When they got themselves into the same kind of pickle again. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, God said, If my people who are called by my name Number one, humble themselves. Number two, pray. Number three, seek my face. And number four, turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear them from heaven, will forgive their sin, will heal their land. What would prompt God, convince God? What would cause God to save them this time? Well, rather than just acknowledging that they sinned, there had to be a change. There had to be repentance in their life. As we close, let's apply what we've learned. We see the story here in the book of Judges. We understand about them But what does that mean to you and me? Anything? Any lesson we need to take home from what we read about these people? May I ask you tonight, how long will America have to deal with all the violence 
the hatred, the destruction with which we're now being faced before we actually realize that we have a need for God. How long will it have to go on? We might say it this way, as a nation, we're doing everything that we can to kick God out, aren't we? Aren't there lawsuits even, even before the courts right now that want to kick God out of schools and public places? We don't want anybody showing anything about what Scripture says anywhere that we can see it. may not be totally accurate that we're trying to keep God or kick God out of America. It may not be the right way of saying it. See, the problem is we don't have to kick him out because as a nation, by our sinful actions, we've already forsaken him, left him, abandoned him, deserted him. What's come along now is not that we're trying to kick him out. We just don't want to be reminded that there is a God that we left behind. And that's the problem. How many have seen on Facebook the memes in, in just recent days of people posting on their wall, Praying for Vegas after the shooting last Sunday. Praying for Vegas. What good is it going to do to pray for situations like this if as a nation we don't repent, we don't change our ways? I'm not saying don't pray for the people and for those who are hurting one of those who was killed, the nurse uh, that was died protecting his wife, lived just a few miles from where we were before we moved down here, the one that's been on the news, and actually worked for a while in the unit. He was too young to be there when Marlene was there, but worked in the same SICU unit that Marlene worked in. You know, that's getting awfully close to home. I've got friends in... Atwood, who actually are kin to him. That's getting close to home. I'm not saying don't pray for the people, the hurt. But what good is it going to do to, for situations, pray that situations like this are going to stop until, as a nation, we make a change? You see, that's our lesson tonight that we've learned from Israel. God says, I'm not going to keep bailing you out. Just say it a different way this time. I'm not going to keep bailing you out. You've got to make a change. Don't you just wonder what God up in heaven must be thinking as he sees what's going on in our own nation. You see, this studying back 
from the book of Judges, things that happened a long, long time ago, is not just studying stories. It's principles. It's truths. God's principles and God's truths, they still apply. But you know what? The lesson is not just for nation, is it? The lesson also holds true for individuals, doesn't it? How is it that we think that we can pray to God to deliver us when we get into trouble and yet we want to live our life in a way that doesn't match His teaching? God's just the emergency number on our prayer list. We get in trouble? God, get me out this time. Bail me out. Is God in heaven saying about you tonight, someone you know, save you no more? That's even closer to home, isn't it? In the book of Hebrews chapter 13, at verse number 5, the writer of the book of Hebrews says this, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Boy, those are comforting words, aren't they? That God said, I will never leave you or do what the children of Israel did to him. Leave him. God has said, I will never forsake you. But the question tonight is not whether he will forsake us. But have we... Forsaken, left, abandoned, deserted him. Wow. What lessons we learned from long ago. God still wants to help. Did you notice there? The last verse from the book of Judges, chapter 10, that we read. When the children of Israel, when they actually repented, turned away from their idols, got rid of them. Do you remember what was said there in that passage? In verse 16. The Bible says about God, that after they had done that, that he became impatient over the misery of Israel. When they came back to him, he was there. Have you left God tonight? Do you need to come back to him? In this good audience, there may be one or more who has 
I don't know, but the invitation that the Lord gave us is open to you. If you need to respond to it for any reason tonight, do it right now as together we stand and sing. to you and you must